Well, um, welcome to this next episode of the Multicultural Middle Ages. Um, hi there, my name's Alice. Um, Alice Fulmer, I use she, her pronouns. I am an MAPHD student in the English department over at UCSB in the lovely, beautiful, sunny coast, central coast of California. Um, I'm here with two dear friends of mine. Uh, one is my cohort mate, Olivia, and my colleague, Erin. And from there, I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Erin. I use she, her pronouns. I am the Arts and Humanities Librarian at Occidental College in LA. So about 96 miles as the crow flies from my friends at UC Santa Barbara. And while I am not an active student, I feel like I am one because I'm at a college where I get to help students with their research all the time and teach them about how to find sources and all that kind of stuff. So I feel like I'm always immersed in learning new things. And that's why I like to learn from what my friends have to say as well. And also you you are a medievalist. You're medieval. Secretly. It's my secret. Yeah. Oh, secret. I have no choice but being open medieval ass. Yeah, I also have interests in in general in popular culture, but one of my like weird niche interests is like pirates and media. Yes, love a good pirate. Yeah, especially recent media where they're openly gay. Very much a fan. Hmm, you know, there's a show I I kinda know that's like that. <laughs> what's it called? Um what's it? Our Our <laughs> Banner means um <laughs> Our flag means death. <laughs> oh, yes, exactly. But Wonderful. also in the past 10 years, black sails on stars. Extremely. Amazing. Oh, yeah, yeah. I need to watch that. I need more lesbian content in my life. Yes, there are um, lesbians. There are bisexual people. There are gay people. There are all kinds of my favorite people are all in that show. Wow, all that once, too. How funny. Not all the same character. Really rare for a Oh, television. wow. That... <laughs> Look, look how far we've come. <laughs> um, but Liv, um, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, yeah, I'm I'm Olivia Bevenu. She they pronouns. <laughs> um, yeah, I I am as Alice, a, a second year MA PhD student in the Department of English at UC Santa Barbara. Um, I am the resident early modernist on this <laughs> on this podcast episode uh, um okay. al- although i do um have some experience um studying medieval stuff studying pop culture stuff and and very excited to talk about some of this wait a minute are you telling me there's a difference between the middle ages and the early modern period yeah <laughs> I, I guess i suppose oh, i'm wow. implying that yeah wow. okay well, isn't that so interesting? Because so many of the things that we're going to look at today don't really care for that distinction. We've been toying around with this loose script of the rad long 1990s, right? Like the long 18th century the long 12th century etc right all these all these centuries that are long but you know when I think about long decades one of the first ones I think of course is the the 1990s so this is the rad long 1990s nostalgia and pop medievalisms of the 90s and Y2K that being said 
I think there is a difference between the 90s and Y2K, but that difference is not so stark as medieval to early modern. I think one of the interesting things that drew us to this topic was the fact that divisions between time periods and um, between genres are very fluid in terms of especially when we when we look at media especially media made for made for children made for Mm -hmm. families that there's idea that there's the medieval in particular I think and I know I'm biased as a medieval person the medieval in particular is this wonderful sort of missing puzzle piece that people can put whatever they want into and that Mm -hmm. it's this incredible medium for exploring issues that are distinctly non-medieval but become medieval through that exploration yes as a non-medievalist i will confirm that it's not a medievalist bias alice you will like this anecdote so i recently was talking to somebody else in our english department it was vaughn and he was telling me about how he has taught the lower level medieval literature sort of survey class here at UCSB something like five times, like four or five times. And he is not a medievalist. And believe it or not, at, at our school, it that isn't like a highly desired class for us graduate students to teach just because, you know, sometimes the language can be tougher. The plot lines can be sort of, you know, difficult to parse for whatever reason. Um, but he was telling me about how much he like really enjoys teaching that class. It's his favorite class to teach. He always puts it as his top preference because he was pretty much saying exactly that. He was like, yeah, stuff that happens in the medieval period is so wacky. Like the stuff that we read is so wild that there is so much room for like interpretation and I don't know, sort of like projecting these sort of contemporary problems and ideas onto like these stories and sort of like learning about them through through Mm -hmm. these like really classic narratives. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I feel like there's enough. One of the reasons why I think medieval, sort of pseudo medieval, faux medieval, medieval esque, whatever, medievalisms settings are so compelling is because I feel like as as a society, we live in a society. <laughs> um, <laughs> I feel like as a society, you live in a society. <laughs> it's just far enough away for us to be yeah. able to explore our current issues and questions without putting it too close for comfort. And I think that that's part of how the medieval in popular culture ends up through this dichotomy of either very gritty and gross and terrible dark ages sort of redux and how Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings sometimes like these sort of sweeping high fantasies that we put in a medieval setting to justify the fact that we want to explore women being treated terribly and racism and all that kind of stuff like all these things that we know exist now but we can't do in our current media without getting more criticized for I feel like that's one of the things that we put in the medieval and then the things that we're interested in talking about in this podcast is sort of the opposite like the medieval as this escape or this nostalgic place that isn't really bound by time, but is just sort of like this fun thing to make fun of, but also genuinely appreciate at the same time. So I feel like that that dichotomy of like the the Middle Ages are either this glorious chivalrous past, which is often 
accompanied with right. white supremacist stuff, but yeah, um, it can be this, this beautiful lauded past with shining castles and knights, or it can be this like disgusting, horrible place like in Monty Python and the Holy Grail where the yeah. peasants are just like digging for dirt for no reason. And that's just like, that's what the medieval past is. But those peasants, they were organized properly <laughs> and they, they have won us, um, one up on us for that. Yeah, but true. I see what you're saying. Absolutely. That's one of the things that I think is like this inherent sort of just divide in sort of medieval media that I don't know that a lot of other genres have that level of sort of distance between the depictions. You know, we are definitely not impartial sources to ask this question, but I do think we are. I think we have a few things to say, at least. When I first was drumming up this idea, I had just gone done with some coursework. I'm like that medieval pro summer I was taking. And, you know, as I think it was that last quarter of it, I was watching all these crazy, just bizarre, just absolutely bananas adaptations, like Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, right? And one was like, I think it was one from the 70s, it was like 73. I think it's just called Gawain and the Green Knight. It's a little bit more kind of like, Camelot right that mid-century medievalism right that is like also sometimes kind of a serve like it's kind of a mood I'm not like knocking mid-century medievalism like wholesale I was at the (laughs) you know growing up if you're at like a big lots or some kind of wholesale store they would have like this bin of like VHS or DVDs that were like one or two or three dollars I was scraping like this Gawain adaptations sort of the valiant which also has Sean Connery as the Green Knight. But, like, even by that point, like, if the 50s, 60s, and 70s, at least in the West, had this kind of mid-century medievalism going for it, the 80s was that kind of, like, gritty, like, He-Man, like, Reagan-era, you know, medievalism, which, I don't know, like, it it's kind of gross. But then there are, like, little picturesque, like, moments in that era, too. Stuff like The Last Unicorn. Or the never-ending story, right? These kind of, like, really peak Gen X fairy story movies. Of course, don't come for my man, Jim Henson, with the storyteller. I will always, always come to the storyteller's defense. If you haven't seen that, it's this lovely little series that Jim Henson worked on towards the end of his life that was kind of, like, retellings of, like, folk stories. There's also a season where it's just, like, Greek myths, and it's just like, there's this wild, like, costumes, right? Because this is Jim Henson. So some of them are puppets, but some of them are just, like, big, strange, labyrinth-type creatures. So for me, that this is kind of, like, getting into the cusp of this Y2K, like, 90s medievalism. That it seems like it's not the same motion of the Disney Renaissance. But I think it's also interesting, too, that, like... Uh, stuff like Beauty and the Beast, right, lauded as, like, this, you know, essential piece of the Disney Renaissance. How interesting that it kind of teeters on aesthetics that are, like, medieval, but then they're also, like, early modern, and then just, like, whatever, like, like, anachronisms that they want to throw in from, like, middle French or however you sort of soccer blue from. In my way, is the hinge of the discussion. It's like, oh, this is, like, a movie central to the Disney Renaissance as in the the period of time in the what late 80s through the 90s that kind of like brought a resurgence to like Disney as an animation company but it also it's renaissance like but not necessarily renaissance right 
um, it is a pastiche of both like the medieval, the early modern, and for what it's worth, the Renaissance, like whatever that looks like. I think there's something to be said for the Disney Renaissance, the legacy of that, the sort of, like you said, the pastiche of different eras in the Disney Renaissance that had such a strong impact on people growing up in really like Euro-American households in that era. And the fact that Mm -hmm. we're sort of of this generation that even if you didn't actively engage with a lot of that material, it still was around. It was just like everywhere in society, completely saturated, like the Disney sort of aesthetics and all this stuff. And the fact that so much of it created this monopoly, this conglomerate that was built on the idea of like fairy stories and princesses and castles and old houses and manors and all these sort of things that I think really contributed to people's ideas of like a nostalgic past that they could Mm -hmm. escape to. Meeting the princesses at Disneyland and Disney World and all this stuff and The fact that even a movie like Aladdin that is sort of just like vaguely like, ooh, in the Middle East, question mark, it still has a lot of really interesting questions about like how medieval is it and how current. And, And so each one of them, I think, could be seen in that way of like there's this idea in Beauty and the Beast that like the castle that the beast lives in is centuries old. And there's this idea that it's this medieval landmark that's routed and hidden and, and menacing until this woman from the later from the early modern slash modern period comes and right comes. oh my that's that's brilliant oh my god <laughs> <laughs> but like I think there's something to be said for also the escapism of Beauty and the Beast in that setting being sort of vaguely long 18th century and then right and the whole at- idea of this grand library yeah, there's a lot yeah. of stuff. I mean, it makes you think of like the texts and the ideas coming out of that era and like the sort of like enlightenment stuff that they're trying to inject with like, see, she's going to teach him to read and she's going to civilize him and right. stuff. And then this like medieval beast. And then what I think is also- Literally like, like straight out of a bestiary. Oh my God, yes. Especially- Wow, bestiary. <laughs> His design is like many animals in the beach theory, like a complete pastiche of different different animals. Like the fact that they they've got water buffalo, bison, like cat, lion, (laughs) monkey, like all kinds of different things. But I think what's also interesting there is like there's this idea that I know circles on the internet every few years where people are like, so didn't they get executed in the French Revolution if that's when this was supposed to be set? I mean, I think that's another one of those things that you go through and you look at the medieval past sort of clinging to its last vestiges of life as the Ancien Regime comes to an end right. and that being the setting for Beauty and the Beast. And I think that, that there has to be something to be said there that can't just be like accidental, that it's intentional thing. Well, yeah, I mean, I think apart from like Disney's original characters, right? Like Mickey and Goofy and and that gang, Disney's like early success was very much based on Renaissance, early modern medieval ideas, like these fairy tales, right? Like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves was like the 30s. Sleeping Beauty was the 50s. Like this wasn't the Disney Renaissance, but the Disney Renaissance was sort of established by going back to what they knew, right? Which was like retellings of these like medieval sort of, stories and with that being said like disney is such a undeniably 
influential entity, right? So like when they go back to what they know and are mass producing these stories right and left, like of course people are going to take the lead and, and like feed into that, sort of ride that wave. So it kind of makes sense that we've come all this way and we still see these things today because it's really where it all started. Yeah. And it's also interesting to see the fact that the Disney Renaissance is this era that is not currently happening. <laughs> Right. So where are we now? Yeah. If you look at sort of like their biggest hit in the recent decade was Frozen, which came out what around exactly 10 years ago and 2013, I believe. Yeah, 13 or 14. And if you think about like what's like Olivia, like you said, like the formula that works. I mean, I think the medieval is always a formula that at least gets eyes on it. And we see in our era of the post Game of Thrones era. Like there's a little bit of fatigue over it, I think, among audiences, especially because of the controversy of how the show ended badly. But people flocked back to the House of the Dragon prequel. Right. Like people are always going to find something in the medieval. And I think that's why it's going to keep enduring because people, whether or not they have positive feelings about that era or about what we think that era might have looked like, it's always going to be something that we're going to just keep revisiting in a way that I mean you don't see that sort of saturation of an era in popular culture that much besides like Victorian stuff and like World War II stuff or whatever but like one of those eras that you keep seeing in visual media. I mean I'm also kind of obsessed with the kind of the subtext of what Liv was saying just a minute ago which was like there are multiple renaissances just as there are in the middle ages we have multiple Disney renaissances. a little bit on Beauty and the Beast. What if we went into like Hunchback of Notre Dame? Yeah, so Hunchback of Notre Dame comes out sort of at the end of what we think of as the canonical Disney Renaissance. So Beauty and the Beast is early 90s and Hunchback is sort of late 90s. So that's 1996. Based on Victor Hugo's iconic 19th century text, Hunchback of Notre Dame, which was basically written as a screed against leaving the Notre Dame de Paris cathedral to rot and fall into the ground. He was obsessed with it as an architectural icon and sort of fell into that trend of those 19th century medievalists, early medievalists who sort of define the genre and the scholarly field of medieval studies for better or for worse. So when you think about like why Disney adapts it, it's kind of a really bleak story. It's been adapted multiple times in silent films and in other films much earlier than Disney. And it's not super kid-friendly because it's this gigantic cathedral that hosts a physically disabled man who everybody hates because ableism and who falls in love with a Romani woman and in the end in the book they like die together in a crypt or something really terrible. Now what the Disney film does that I think is interesting when considering like Y2K medievalisms is it turns the main antagonist Frollo from someone with religious orders in the book into a judge who is Mm -hmm. secular in the movie and who is sort of working against the church. He hosts Quasimodo. He's sort of the very bad adoptive parent of Quasimodo, our main protagonist. He 
makes him live in the cathedral and ring the bells and he's a terrible guy and what i think is really interesting about the disney movie in particular is that he takes in quasimodo out of guilt because he wants to chase all of the roma population out of paris and out of france and he seems to be uniquely driven by the single motivation of basically genocide he chases a woman And she falls and dies against the steps of Notre Dame. And the priest comes out. And again, this is when it's showing Frollo sort of like working against the church. The priest comes out and tells him that he has to now care for the child, which he deems to be a monster even before we see him. And what we know as viewers, what we think we know is that it's because he's physically disabled, physically sort of deformed in Frollo's eyes. But all we know so far is there is a Romani woman with her baby, presumably running away. And so all we see is that he finds a Romani baby disgusting. That's all that we know. And then it shows this sort of flash forward into when he's like a young adult early adult. And what makes me sort of curious is, does he look like his mother who had a dark complexion and sort of looks more like traditionally what we would think a Romani woman would look like? No, he's like blondish red and has blue eyes and is white. And the only thing that's sort of like disgusting about him is that he has a physical disability. And so I think Disney right away is trying to be like, see, even unlikely Ugly people can be heroes too. We're being great. But it's very telling that they refuse to acknowledge the fact that he is Romani himself. And I think that's like one of the foundational things of the movie that they don't contend with. And what I think the implications of that are for sort of pop medievalisms is we can only have one problem at a time and only have one sort of marginalized population that we're willing to address at a time. And we can't have like this intersectional identity of this main character because otherwise it just wouldn't make sense. We have to have Esmeralda as our representation of Roma identity. We can't have Quasimodo do that too, because that would just be too much. When you put it in context of what's happening in the world, we have, like you mentioned earlier, sort of the Camelot, like Kennedy era, mid-century medievalisms that are very idealized. But after the Reagan era and after a lot of Cold War upheaval and the Balkans and all of the like sort of genocide situations that happened there, it really seems like Hunchback is this idea of we want to explore the fact that we just had all of these atrocities, but we want to put it far away in an accessible, family-friendly way mm-hmm. where only one person is doing these things and they get defeated at the end. So each character represents one of these populations. And in the end, the genocidal, terrible person is Frollo and he's destroyed in the end. And so he's seen as like a single threat. So thus, There's an optimistic view of society where this multiracial contingency of Quasimodo and Esmeralda and the very white, blonde, sort of traditionally European handsome man, Phoebus, all come together and with the power of God and happiness on their side, like destroy the terrible man that hates marginalized people. That's my thoughts about the fact that America is at the time too uncomfortable with real world ethnic cleansing and we have to put it in the medieval past in order to sort of justify talking about it but we can tie up very neatly with a little bow on top the fact that it's over and it's done and everyone's happy now
just before on track of Notre Dame, well, there's there's two different titles. It's like one of those situations where there's like a different American title because I don't know we're like prudes, even though there's nothing explicit about like the original title. The original title is Hour of the Pig. Um, but in America, it's just called the Advocate, right? And it's about like animal trials in what is it like mid like fifteenth century France. Basically, this young city lawyer is sent to the countryside, and his first case is dealing with the first animal trial case. There's a pig that kills a young Jewish boy, and then around this time, there is a traveling Roma group. They refer to the film as like a little Egypt, like some kind of diminutive, because I think that's just like people in the 14th, 15th, 16th century just not knowing their geography at all, and also just kind of generalizing Roma as Egypt, as India. Anyway, it seems to be part of this French response to race in the Middle Ages, and I don't think it's necessarily the same across the board. I guess this is just confirming that we see it in Notre Dame, and then we also see it in other movies about medieval French settings in the 90s. One of my galaxy brain thoughts is that people always get weird around a turn of a century, a turn of a millennium. And this is something that's also very medieval. This happened like Gregory of Tours. He's going to write a history of the Franks and it doesn't matter where it's going because everyone's going to die in the year 500 anyway. Like the eschatology of endings and beginnings. And I think that's why it also makes me kind of laugh about this Y2K medievalisms because there's a reason why we call this era Y2K now. Like there's a reason and it's like because there was just this gigantic panic that something was going to like break down society and it feels like it happens every time there's sort of any big transition. I mean, it happened in 1000. It happens right all the time. And, and there's also a lot of media around them that seem to contend with that. I mean, I'm thinking this is totally not medieval, but like the time machine by HD Wells coming out right around 1900. And it takes place of 1900. And this man is sort of unable to contend with that and goes into the future and the past to see where they fit in. And then we have stuff coming out in the late 90s, early 2000s, that's very much like we have to go back because we don't know where the future is going to. And like, we have to explore this. I don't think it's a coincidence that the late 80s, early 90s is when, you know, third wave feminism started, like intersectionality was coined, right? Like these ideas of coexisting identities, and they're just now sort of becoming really um, prevalent in common dialogues. So I think these movies that we're talking about, Hunchback or whatever, their efforts to participate in this conversation that is in some ways new to them, but also feels really relevant to their history and the sort of contemporary issues that they often project on their family films. want to get into the like most fun sort of medievalist media of this era which is Shrek 2001. Shrek really is one of the biggest pop culture icons if not the biggest. Oh my gosh I mean even just meme culture like Shrek is such a I guess like Shrek the character Shrek but also other characters in Shrek are such consistent figures in meme culture that it's unbelievable how relevant it still is 21 years later 22 years later yeah I think what we were saying about like Disney being omnipresent in like the generation of people sort of between millennial and Gen Z I feel like Shrek is absolutely the same but in the more chaotic way 
Yeah, like in a much more noted chaotic way. And also kind of bears its anachronisms on its sleeve. And that's so, part of the fun. Yeah, exactly. That's what's so funny about it is that we spent the whole first part of this talking about Disney and Shrek. It's basically just like making fun of Disney. I literally just taught my students satire like last week and I showed them like clips from Shrek. We talked about like, what is this making fun of? Why is it useful? Why do we find it funny? And right, like it's always making fun of Disney or these romanticized ideals of some past time. Yeah, I mean, if, if part of what we're saying in this episode is that medieval pop culture of the past few decades is bridging the medieval and the contemporary. It takes no prisoners with like who it makes fun of. No, not at all. From the past to the present. I mean, there's like a Joan Rivers cameo in one of mm-hmm. them. There's like Simon Cowell. Yeah. Right. It's just sort of like anyone who's this who's this figurehead of the early 2000s is absolutely skewered by Shrek Mm -hmm. and not in a nasty way in just a hilarious way in a way that like everyone in a way that like brings it all together well yeah and I hate to say it well I love to say it but I still kind of hate to say it but it is very postmodern of Shrek to do that which like not that the other stuff we've talked about doesn't like anticipate whatever we want to say postmodernism is or whenever it starts whatever but I mean Shrek is like fully postmodern like it's fully into this era of like completely disregarding like whatever like highbrow culture supposed to be or these like pop culture like rights and wrongs these customs of of like antiquity whatever um yeah fully fully disregards that and does its own thing but what's also too though like what's more medieval than that like being able to subvert ideas about like romance about storytelling about parody about genre don't get me started on trying to define romance because there isn't a good definition. I mean, you can look, I mean, of course, this is like the mission of a lot of like scholars in like medieval literature, again, particularly in romance, just like a term like chivalry, the genre itself is a point of contention. But like Shrek, Shrek thinks that's fun. Like it takes that by the bullhorns and just takes like us on this just strange little ride. What I love too is it's grounding very much what is the medieval, like how it'll open up with like the storybook right and well now also too something I, I catch myself doing and it's so silly and it's so academic i did it in beauty and the beast and i and i do it when i rewatch trek when they present like books i'm like is that is that paper or is that parchment is that vellum is that the good baghdad paper right <laughs> um i find myself doing this because it's like i'm interested too in like how like uh like intertextual media Right, how like media presents other media within itself. And it's just so fun. It's so I don't know. I mean, Shrek isn't quite like fabulo, but um when I think of like really fun medieval stuff, like I often think of that trashy little tales like that you can enjoy with like your friend as well as like a lover and it's gonna make someone blush a little bit. As much as like Shrek is not medieval, it also totally is in its framing. Well, I mean, it's like a classic hero journey, and it's got some of the crude humor that you see in Canterbury stuff. Right. Oh, oh, absolutely. The <laughs> fart jokes. Like, yeah, Miller's Tale. Of course, the fact that there's like a story within a story, like that is just so like, that is so medieval. Also, I will just say, I will just pipe up, 
as the early modernists, like a lot of the fairy tales that they at least make references to are extremely like early modernists from the, the, the you know, the 17th century. So it is Oh. like, yes, it is. It is very much like what Alice and I, I know have talked about a lot where the early modern period and the medieval period are just enough in the past that people are comfortable like conflating them as one and sort of just like presenting Right. this like hybridized, romanticized like version of it for the sake of aesthetic Olivia, I want to hear more about your thoughts about Shrek and scholarship that's been done on it. I guess like what scholarship hasn't been done on Shrek, I don't know. I, I feel like there are people who have studied it from, you know, race, like with a perspective like race studies or like post-colonialism or like queer theory or, you know, they're Yeah. like, you can literally look at this film from any from any sort of avenue and and come up with something really interesting. But I think that was kind of the point when it was created is they wanted to be very subversive. What specifically do we want to talk about? Like, we could talk about specific medievalisms within the Shrek Quartet, as it has been called. You know, there's like the dragon. We could talk about like the costuming, the literal like settings um, that take place, the far, far away, right? The fact that it's called far, far away, indicative of it Right. being representative of some time or something that's far, far away. Yeah, I think it's fascinating, too, if we're going to talk about far, far away, that Shrek is the one that he clearly finds it repulsive. They go to far, far away, and it's supposed to be this really beautiful home of, like, his beloved,
a parody of the Disney Renaissance. Right, right. They're literally like watching it and the still of Shrek and Donkey after the song ends. It's so funny. It's just like so iconic. You know, I think that wasn't the first movie I saw in theaters, but I definitely saw it in theaters. And yeah, just being absolutely just enamored. I think too, for those familiar with 13th, 14th, 15th century travel narratives as well, at least coming from the English perspective, when we see stuff like Far, Far Away or or Do The, it's like sometimes the exonyms of locations in travel narratives, sometimes they mean something, right? Sometimes it's, it's a very like on the nose meaning, but then other times it can just be like some kind of telephone amalgamation of what the end name is or a mysterious third thing unrelated to both what Native peoples would call it as well as some kind of pointed name. Like the only example I can think of right now is actually not from a travel narrative, but thinking of like the Green Chapel, right? In the Green Night, it's like, it's the Green Chapel, bright as day, an emerald chapel building. And I see some of that still like in like Shrek, this just treating things that are not your immediate realm, as in like the locus of the swamp, get out me swamp, all of that fun goodness. But behind that too, there's also this psychogeography of the realm as well. And sometimes it feels like the perfect blend of parody. And I'm sure there's some rink and dink place that looks exactly like Dulac. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about how Duloc is like almost a medieval times within a medieval times, right? You think about when medieval times was sort of becoming much more commercial and popular, and it's the 90s, the 2000s. Yeah. Like, a lot of people's birthday parties and stuff were hosted there, and that's when it sort of... Oh, sure around the country to be multiple locations that era but also I was thinking when you said travel narratives like Shrek is a subversion of the traditional travel narrative where he's like a reverse John Mandeville of like he's one he's the monsters that's going out to find civilization you know in quotes rather than the other way around I mean and in that sense then again that's why we can understand and sympathize with that parody and that sort of satirical lens because we see it through him and we see the absurdity of the construction of Duloc being so absolutely just false and focused on this outward aesthetic but not actually having any substance <laughs> and like the idea of the fact that it makes fun of Hollywood <laughs> in the in the next movie of the west side which now yeah. that I know, I like to make fun of the west side but and um, in Shrek the Third, they make fun of King Arthur. His name is literally King do. Arthur. Yeah. yeah, and he's like this awkward little Arthuriana. Yeah, but, but I mean, the, there, are, but there are Arthur stories like that where Arthur is just like this little a little guy. A twink. You know? He's a twink. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> King Arthur the twink. Yeah, fanboy yeah. <laughs> uh, King Arthur. With that, like, the fact that there's, like, that medieval academy that they're all going to that's, like, a California high school about, like, medievalist. <laughs> and I think also what we're saying about these, this media being sort of family-friendly and available to all ages and genre sort of watchers, part of what's interesting there is that that's some of the first times that I was exposed to, like, medievalism. Yes, yeah. And so that's how we crafted the medieval in the sort of social understanding of pop culture medievalisms. I think you really cannot avoid Shrek for a large part of the population. Well, also too, um, it's because it's not just Shrek. It's the fact that Shrek also kind of like caused the influence over other like CGI films loosely kind of associated with like fairy tales or medieval stuff. I'm thinking of two in particular. One is Hoodwinked. 
absolute classic from 2005. But then also stuff that's tied to like a larger franchise, like a franchise's response to something. Case in point, Barbie Fairytopia, also 2005. at like the turn of the century the stuff that we talked about earlier hunchback and beauty and the beast and sort of the valiant what's the difference i guess what is like the progression that we're trying to track here how are the medievalisms represented or sort of inserted in the 90s especially like the early 90s right like towards the beginning of the disney renaissance and then how are they used or representative now which now being like 2001 like now in this conversation kind of now well i guess we got just gotta, gotta take it back to nostradamus <laughs> that was a very very cultured reference on that there'll be some tinfoil hat wearers you think that like nostradamus predicted 9-11 right that sort of thing but i do think that that shake up in like the global like global media sphere had an influence as well on how medievalism began to be treated if i'm not mistaken too i guess the, the pre-production probably would have been before 9-11 but stuff like lord of the rings mm-hmm. right the peter jackson adaptations i mean that is such a different coloring of the middle ages for me one thing to remark would be the live action medieval pieces in the 90s, at least that I can think of, they're a lot more tame in the production value. And then you have something like Lord of the Rings, which of course, like, I mean, is very, very masculine, but then also kind of effeminate. Like there's a tenderness to the men in these films. And it's so much more grandiose than some of the other live action medieval films I can think of from the 80s and 90s. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to hear me and all of my thoughts on like how Lord of the Rings is the most homoerotic, like French, <laughs> but oh, or yeah. also that it is World War One, even though Tolkien said it wasn't. But I think that gets into the fact that you can never separate media from the time it was created in, right? Like we can never take it out of that context. And when I'm thinking, Olivia, what you asked about sort of the transition, I think even though it's only about 10 years after Beauty and the Beast, the the Shrek quartet begins to be released. So it's not like a ton of time passed. You can still, I think, track a sort of fatigue from the oversaturation of that Disney happily ever after idea directly into sort of the Shrek and the hoodwinked and the the comedy of the late 90s, early 2000s feels so much more lighthearted sometimes and crude and just like silly. And I think it's because you have this extremely traumatizing century Not that any century isn't traumatizing, but you have multiple world wars and you have, especially in the United States, constant warfare and constant rhetoric of warfare and violence in the political atmosphere, even when there isn't and sort of an active conflict. And the media that is set in another time becomes this intense escapism. And there's two reactions to it. And one of them is that of this sort of media we're talking about, one of them is, don't you love to escape into the fairy story universe? where everybody gets their happily ever after. And the other one is the sort of Shrek and Hoodwinked and all of these things that are saying, who's happily ever after? Not my happily ever after. And I think that sort of indicates that whenever something is explosively popular, there's going to be a reaction to it. And it sometimes comes out pretty fast. I don't think the Twilight movies were even like halfway through before there was a parody movie I remember seeing in the theater. And you think about right now, I think we have big like, 
superhero fatigue as a society because what the like 31st or 32nd Marvel would uh. <laughs> not care less like yeah frankly no offense to anybody who likes these movies but like I became sick of them years ago but when you look at media coming out as a reaction to it we yeah. have the boys on Amazon which I don't watch but I know is sort of what if superheroes were actually ridiculous people sort of is like a more of a watchman perspective and so sure. anytime you have something that's extremely popular and in a very I don't want to say naive, but almost like a naive perspective, like in these Disney's where, movies where it's like, don't worry, genocide only happens when it's one bad guy and we'll take care of him. And they lived happily ever yeah. after and they held hands and there was no more racial tension in Paris, in medieval Paris. The end. And I think that is such a reaction to the fact that there is racial tension in society and right. we can go away and we can make it go away through this sort of fictional undertaking. And then Shrek is saying like, whoa, 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 it didn't go away, but let's have fun with it. And I think that is sort of part of a transition I see that now coexists. I mean, of course, there was parody and satire before Shrek, but I think that was a turning point for how extreme of a cultural icon it became to the point where it became a franchise when it wasn't intended to be one because it was so popular. It became um, completely commercialized. I mean, like you think about the fact that like a Shrek Happy Meal is the antithesis of what the, the, the story is really kind of about, but that's what it became. So I think there it's like, does it still have the impact versus intent situation of are people still getting out of it? That idea of making fun of a happily ever after, or has it then become the very thing it swore to defeat? I think as the movies go on, they fall deeper and deeper into the tropes they're trying to satirize. Like the very last one, especially like the fourth one. The second one, I think right. is personally like, but, but I think that that just demonstrates, like, I still think they're like all very iconic, but it doesn't have to be just medieval or just early modern or anything because it all coexists. And that's all part of what makes it so effective because then you can watch it from any perspective and latch onto something that connects to you whether you read shrek as a racial other or disabled other or like an immigrant other like any sort of thing you or a queer other any sort of reading you put onto it works because it's not specific enough to be drilled into that one trope or one setting i think even when you're looking at some of my favorite literature from the medieval period like like looking at like an author like marie de france who also is very concerned with like the other and othering throughout the lays. But it's interesting because you do see parody of genre in these little poems. So it's weird. Even before we have the delineation of these genres as we do today, we still have parody, right? I mean, even going back to like some of the first Roman novels, we have parody. Even before the novel as we know it is fixed. I guess my general like impression of medievalism starting from the 90s going into Y2K I think I in general I do see some of that optimism like kind of chipped away a little bit and I don't think it's not unrelated to what you said there Aaron with like something like Shrek that is not just a standalone film but now it's being expanded into all these little like spin-offs and toys and this and that and it's like it's interesting because like Shrek would hate that <laughs> like Shrek is a character I'm sure would you know if if he saw like these row of toys dedicated to him I'm sure his first reaction would be to go up to them and just like squeeze them all till they pop you know yeah, I mean, to me, that's that's the funniest part. That's the most effective part of what I think Shrek is trying to do. The main character, the name 
like the namesake, right? Shrek is very much like hesitantly going on with everything that happens to him. Like he's hesitantly going along with, you know, going to far, far away and, and going to seek the advice of a fairy godmother and, you know, going to slay the dragon and rescue the princess. Like he's like, oh, I'll just do it because I have to. But like, this is stupid. I mean, even like the very first lines of the first movie are like when he's, you know, reading the fairy tale about like once upon a time, there was, you know, a, a princess who lived in a tower or whatever and then he like tears the page out of this like fairy tale book and then starts laughing and is like like that's ever gonna happen right the entire series he's very much representative of like he's the one that keeps us in the know that this is all sort of like satirical that this is all making fun of something that this is all in good fun which to me is what like really makes that series successful The POVs of the Disney movies are not as explicit in many ways as it is in Shrek. We get Quasimodo's I Want song in Hunchback and we see what he wants, but it's a very straightforward hero narrative of he wants more and he's an other and he wants to become not an other and all that sort of thing. And that's very much like with Belle, she wants more. I mean, that's like a literal lyric (laughs) that she sings like, yeah, and Ariel in Little Mermaid and like so many of these like traditional hero journeys is like I'm in a small town whether that be an actual provincial French town or in the attic of a cathedral or under the sea or whatever and I want to be where other people are and other like society is and Shrek is the exact opposite he lives in a swamp all by himself and he's absolutely fighting tooth and nail to remain that way And in his own sort of bubble he's created, which when you think of him as being able to map any sort of other, like he's created his own queer community. He's created his, (laughs) like whatever, like if we're thinking of him as like, as analogous to a marginalized community today, especially when like the fairy tale creatures sort of invade his swamp, he's very resistant. But then- But they're also refugees. Yeah, they create this like, multicultural multi-species like multi-racial like society that is in direct opposition to conventional but also to uh multi-canon as well yeah like olivia was saying like seeing it is like more early modern than medieval like the fairy tales are a lot of them from 19th century 18th century like him and charles perot and like all of those are like much later than the medieval but they sort of put this sheen of medieval pseudo aesthetic on top in order to incorporate these disparate traditions into each other but yeah i mean i think that's really interesting of like shrek is the antithesis of every hero and he knows it and it's very self-aware that's what's so successful is like you watching it even as a kid you're like (laughs) woohoo like yeah you destroy that fairy tale and and the prince charming and fairy godmother being explicit villains in it are just like you could not get more obvious (laughs) like of satirizing traditional fairy tales and disney culture with the people we would see as the heroes and the deus ex machinas become the villain ex machinas i mean they swoop in to destroy the day and they are also presented as like traditionally attractive and white and sort of like bodied in that way that shrek is not and they represent this like cis heteronormative capitalist society that he's fighting against and we want him to win, but is Shrek a sellout for marrying a royal? Kind of, though. 
Call yeah. that a green knight. I mean, we can keep talking about how Shrek subverts these, like, subverts all these tropes or, or fairy tales in, in whatever ways, but at the end of the day, it it all wraps up pretty nicely in, in each movie to fit within this, like, this hetero box, right? Like, he ends up getting married and living happily ever after, and that's kind of the end like none of the other stuff is upheld like none of the sort of trials and tribulations of like him being critical of of whatever society or whatever you know um like conventions are like really hold up that much because even in like the second movie when he goes to after the marriage and he goes to meet her family like he still very much has to like conform and the story is about how they can accept him with like minimal conforming like there's still some conforming like at the end of the day he it isn't quite maybe as subversive as as they'd like us to think although the journey to get there is fun yeah how progressive and like explosive can you be in 2001 with like a children's movie pretty but you still yeah you can't have it end any other way than the villain gets eaten by a dragon and the donkey man dragon (laughs) but i think that's why these are so fun to talk about and to make and to watch like all of these things that we're talking like the even the stuff from the early earlier 90s that we were talking about is like even all of these are made for children right so like you said in a way there's only so so far you can go to push the boundaries of like what you expect in these in this genre in this this quote-unquote period that these movies are supposedly set in and so it's a really nice vessel for people to like kind of like screw around with like conventions uh, cultural conventions or racial convention whatever right um whatever identities they're trying to explore whatever characters they're trying to convey it's really fun to screw around and experiment with those because at the end of the day you have to then conform for the children watching like you're making this for children so it's a very tactful it's very useful uh, vessel to sort of like do these movies to create these this, these kind of um like satirical sort of sort of stories I was watching an episode a few months ago of The New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, right? This animated series from the late 80s, early 90s. And they have this episode that's like medieval themed, right? A Night to Remember. And throughout the episode, Tigger, he says like things in this kind of bizarre like middle english accent including saying night as knit which is just so so funny i don't think it was intentional on the writer's part but as soon as i was like wait if tigger knows middle english what do all like the other like medievalisms of this age know or not know or place up some kind of facade so it looks like they know how self-aware are they yeah yeah exactly within the yeah within the context of the story exactly so yeah that that's that's how this all kind of got started and then i approached olivia and aaron and the rest is history now i guess it instantly drew me in because i've like thought a lot about the stuff I said about Hunchback before and right. I am a stan of Beauty and the Beast original <laughs> live action evil but it, of course it appealed to us because we're all a, sort of around that same age group where like this was an era in many ways of these animated 
films and, and TV shows of medieval nostalgia, medievalist nostalgia. And now us being adults looking back on these things, now we have like the added layer of nostalgia of like what it meant to us then and what it means to us now. Right. And I think it just- Like nostalgia for, nostalgia for a time that we were only if ever indirectly a part of. I think that that's also why we were all drawn to it is like it can be formative in many ways the media you're exposed to as a kid is obviously very formative but it can be formative in many ways when it teaches you about certain eras whether that's true or false or constructed or anything like that and I think that I I think about like why I ended up sort of a medievalist sort of type and I can trace a lot of that back to like direct interactions with media that I engaged with in certain ways like why do we end up loving certain things academically first we have to love it personally or at least be able to tolerate it personally absolutely right oh 100 percent um it's funny actually I had this pin tweet for a long time maybe it's my old twitter but it basically says something to the effect of you know some people are medievalists because like lord of the rings or like that kind of stuff growing up I me mean, I'm medievalist I'm a medievalist because of Shrek it's funny too what you what you were saying about like time and adaptation and like nostalgia and all of that. Um, those old uh, Rankin Bass films. There's this one Rudolph's Shiny New Year where he like goes to like different aspects of time. It's really fun. But he has this knight, this medieval knight. He takes along with him in this little like band of um, <laughs> well, band of like misfits, right? Like in the first movie, and they eventually stop at like stop in the year of the night right and i remember maybe it was the narrator or father time or something but it was like ah yes back to the year 10 2 3 right that also sounds like really good i'm sure for like the um the younger ear the younger pal like that 10 2 3 and this is the year where all of these fairy tales were actually were actually true. And it's so interesting that it basically puts it right in the middle of the Middle Ages, early 11th century. And I remember that sticking with me for a long time. And like conceptualizing an age, no less like a year. We got a year to cram this historical period with all these fairy tales, even though that a lot of the fairy tales they would make reference to in this kind of like montage song. These were definitely like 18th century, 19th century fairy tales. And I don't know, chasing the dragon of medievalism or medievalisms is maybe the only thing that will keep me in grad school. This has been an episode of the Multicultural Middle Ages, an anthology-style podcast series brought to you by the Graduate Student Committee of the Medieval Academy of America. Season 2 was produced by Will Beattie, Jonathan Correa-Reyes, Reed O'Mara, and Logan Quigley. Music is by Anna O'Connor.